Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Ifstecker. And I'm Oliver Brady. And in this show, we talk about movies, TV, and books which depict the medieval world in both historical fiction and medieval-esque fantasy. We talk about what they got right and what they got wrong and what they tell us about how modern people see the medieval world. I uh, am a massive fan of medieval fantasy and always have been since I was a little boy and that's why I want to do this podcast. Uh, Sarah, why did you want to do this podcast? I want to do this podcast because I'm professionally a medieval historian. I have a PhD in medieval history. I teach medieval history. And I find it interesting that my students come into the classroom and tell me they're taking medieval history courses because they really like Game of Thrones. Yeah, people do like Game of Thrones. I find that with I'm a teacher as well, not as uh, not as pertinent to the subject matter of the show as um, as Sarah's is. But I find that a lot of my students would come in and they have the most ridiculous questions about science. And then you ask them why. And it's like, oh, well, I was watching The Expanse last night. Surely you know all about the expanse, Mr. Brady. Like, okay, maybe I do. Um, I've never actually seen the show, but um, the science in it is complete bullshit. So I imagine that's what you're getting when you're watching medieval or when kids come in and start talking about Game of Thrones. Uh, Miss, when did the dragons die out? It's not quite as bad as when did the dragons die out, um, but it's a lot of just, oh, people were just constantly being murdered at every second in the Middle Ages, right? Yeah, well, that's what I still believe. Three things I believe about the medieval period, and you haven't uh, stopped me from believing them yet. Number one, Prima Nocta was a thing. Number two... (laughs) Number two, (laughs) peasants were just getting murdered left, right, and center. And number three hasn't come up in the podcast yet, but it's going to come up today, and that is that everybody lived in a utopia harmony situation where all colors and creeds were seen as equal, yes? Yes, everybody, except for women. Women are still treated like shit. I said all <laughs> colors and creeds, Sarah. I, wasn't, I mean, clearly I was talking about people who are equal, so I'm not going to talk about women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sarah, I would have been so much better if you'd have laughed at that instead of throwing me under the bus. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Sarah, but that leads us on to today's movie. What is today's movie? Today we watched Last Nights. So this is the newest movie that we've watched thus far. This came out in 2015, um, starring Morgan Freeman. So that already has not aged very well in terms of it's, uh, it's, casting it's, choices. It's definitely gone downhill in the last six months, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, fuck Morgan Freeman these days. So yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, also starring Clive Owen, who, as far as we know, I think is not a terrible human being, unless I missed something. I have heard that he's quite dickish, but lies in not mm. in the way Morgan Freeman is. She's just like an asshole to people. Mm. So two people who are varying degrees of terrible. Hmm. Clive Owen, who apparently turned down the chance to be James Bond. Oh, which, really? Yeah, when when um, it went to. Uh, when Casino Royale was coming out, it was between himself and Daniel Craig, and apparently oh, huh. he turned it down, which, in retrospect, is probably a very bad idea, Clive Hunt. It was, and I'm very disappointed because I still have a weird thing that I don't want James Vaughn to be blonde. <laughs> I have a weird thing where I don't want James Bond to look like a brickie, um, because that's what... 
That's what tangent crank looks like to me. But so you will have to explain that term. I don't know that term. A brickie is somebody who works on building sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what Daniel Craig looks like to me. Whereas Clive Owen looks like a movie star. He does. He looks like James Bond. He looks like the fancier version of Pierce Brosnan, actually. <clears throat> Sorry, he looks like a fancier <laughs> version. We're not even going to get into that. <laughs> Pierce Brosnan, Ireland's favorite son. Um, <laughs> God, I did not mean Sarah, to insult I'm, Ireland's favorite son. I am absolutely <laughs> shocked. At, uh, right. Uh, it also stars Dave Legano, who was uh, Fenrir Greyback um, in the Harry Potter uh, stories. There's no way we can wing getting Harry Potter onto this. Uh, not through any personal connections that I have, but maybe when the podcast becomes really, really famous, he'll reach out to us. Oh, perfect. We will try this. Uh, the next uh, character is Clive Owen's wife. Um, he plays a character named Raiden, and his wife is named Naomi. And I am going to ask Sarah to handle the pronunciation of her name because I am incapable of this, and she has all the linguistic skills. Uh, Ayelet is definitely how you pronounce her first name. Um, Zur, I guess, is the last name. I assume that's kind of Germanic. Uh, she's Israeli. Ayelet is a Hebrew name. Yeah, and she was Superman's mother in Man of Steel. And she was, um, what's his name, Robert Langdon's love interest in Angels and Demons. Which leads me to just jump ahead of something here. Uh, Dan Brown, the writer of Angels and Demons, is in this movie. How did that happen? I have no idea. I, I'd heard that he'd done some acting before. Um, I know he was on the TV show Weeds. On, I think he was in a couple of episodes. But how he ended up in this, I have no idea. Um, he's only in it a little bit. Um, the Emperor has an, a man who is his advisor who dies about three quarters of the way through. That was Dan Brown. Right. Huh. Yeah. Which is Weird. strange to me. That was actually kind of a character that sort of mattered, right? Uh, he was a character sort of mattered because he was the only person keeping the Emperor from going full crazy on it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and then we get Dina Aras, who was in season three of 24. Season three of 24 is what many people consider to be the weakest season of 24, but I actually quite enjoy it. Um, we all want to know what happened to Beirouz. We all, everybody wants to know. <laughs> um, and also, at the end, he cuts up off Chase's hand with an axe. So I'm all about oh, yeah. enjoying that. I like that's, that season. Yeah, that's what you get for dating uh, my daughter, Chase. I'm going to cut off your hand. Um, now, this actress is another person whose name I'm going to ask Sarah to pronounce. Uh, I cannot promise that I'm going to do it especially well because I do not know Persian, but uh, Shora Agadashlu is, I think, more or less correct. That is way better than I would have done because I probably would have said Sheila Agadu. Um, <laughs> and then it also stars a man named Cliff Curtis. Uh, if you happen to be a fan of New Zealand cinema, Cliff Curtis has showed up in about a million movies over the last 20 years. Um, he was the father in Once Were Warriors, and he's a great actor, and I really liked him. And it took me a while to figure out who he was because he looks very different in this from a lot of his other roles, but a very good actor playing a minor part. Hmm. I did not know who he was. Uh, oh. So, yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's harder when we can't see each other. It is. <clears throat> So this podcast is broken into several sections. And in the first section, we are going to do a recap of what actually happens in the movie. Um, we call this section enumeratio, which means recap or retelling in Latin. 
And I know this because Sarah told me that this is how it's called or what it's meant to mean. And uh, we will have eventually jingles for this part, but I am going to, as I've done for the last two episodes, sing us in with my wonderful, wonderful singing voice. <coughs> Segment one. Enumeratio. God damn it, never gets better. <clears throat> Sarah, will you start the recap? I will. So we begin with a voiceover that informs us immediately that this does not take place in any recognizable medieval universe. Um, I know this because the, the voiceover tells us that in this nameless empire in which this is set, people of all colors and creeds can serve the empire as knights. So this is very much not true in Christian Europe. It is very much not true in the Islamic world. It's also very much not true in um, the kind of medieval era uh, Japan, which, as we'll get to, is in fact the, in some ways, most important reference point for this movie. This is going to be something which has been uh, different from the previous movies we've covered. This one will focus on a non-specific uh, period and non-specific characters. So, and by non-specific, I mean not anybody that you would instantly know off the top of your head. And even though it's taking basis from a very famous um, story or a very famous tale, it changes the name significantly. But as Sarah said, one of the main things it does is it tells us that anybody can become a knight. And as we know, that's not true. Knights generally came from the upper class and they generally required a lot of money to keep their knightly stuff, their knightly status going. In addition to having to be of a very specific class, I would say that in most um, medieval societies, it also has very much a kind of religious or ethnic element. Um, so in medieval Europe, if you're not a Christian, there's simply not an option for you to become a knight. Uh, similarly, in the Islamic world, if you're not a Muslim, there's really not an option. Um, Japan, I am less familiar with, although I have done some research for today, and it uh, seems to be the case that pretty much anyone who belonged to the knightly class would be ethnically Japanese. Yeah, so you'd be ethnically Japanese unless you happen to be as cool as Tom Cruise, in which case you can be the last of the samurai um, and really show them how their culture is important to everybody. The Last of the Samurai, starring Tom Cruise. One of the many, <laughs> many movies about Asia, starring white men. Uh, I, I, have a soft <laughs> spot. I have a soft spot for The Last Samurai. But I've never actually seen The Last Samurai. It, it's What quickly becomes clear while we're watching this is that this not only has people of all color and creed, this society that we're watching, that the movie is set in, apparently covers every era of the medieval period and every location in the medieval period. The first time we meet Bartok, who's played by Morgan Freeman, he's in, a, to me, what looks like a very European hall in a very European-style uh, manse or castle. But the room he's in is made to look like a Japanese-style a viewing centre, maybe. I'm not even sure how it would do. All I know is that over each of the windows there were pagoda style wood hangings and there were Japanese style carvings on the walls. Yeah, I would say in some ways, probably my favorite thing about this movie was actually the visuals and the ways that they combined um, the art and architecture of Europe and Japan and the Islamic world. 
Um, there was also a great scene where there's like a 17th century French palace and outside there's a Japanese pagoda and then they're playing chess with uh, the Luz chess set, which is a very famous 12th century chess set, which is, I believe, in the British Museum. It's, uh, I don't, I don't think I've talked about this before. I uh, run a chess club and I've played chess many times a year. The Luz chess set is beautiful. It is really beautiful. And it's a, it is a, a lovely, authentic piece when the two of them sit down to play. Um, I will also say that uh, Clive Owen, when we get to that, said he wins the chess game, but he's shown making two moves, which would have clearly left him open to be killed. So I'm not sure how he managed to win the game. Um, and at one point, I'm fairly certain he was moving his knight to put himself into checkmate. But <laughs> that's that's beside the point. Um, one thing which stood out to me, because uh, the movie starts with a little bit of an action scene where our main guy, Clive Owen, Regan, is attacked by some wandering bandits because, again, it's a medieval movie. We might be all over the place in terms of geography and in terms of culture, but the medieval period is one thing consistent, and that is that bandits are roaming the land trying to kill people. Everyone's just the being problem, murdered all the time. Everyone is just being murdered. The problem that I see is, or that one thing that I pointed out to Sarah, and it was driving me insane as I was watching it, is none of the swords have cross guards of any type. Um, now, Sarah, I'm not sure if you, have you ever uh, had the pleasure of crossing swords with an adversary? I actually did do fencing at camp when I was, I don't know, like 13. And how good were you? Not very, <laughs> as is the case with most of my very brief athletic endeavors. Well, but I think I was slightly better at that than I was at some of them. You were, um, you're much more honest than me because I'm going to say that I was exceptional as part of my fencing team in college um, because I, no, I was okay. I was good. Actually, you know what? I was good. I mean, you but needed to be on a team, so that seems like that, you know, you must have been pretty good. I was, I was fine. But one thing that always happens when you're, I was going to say playing swords, but when you're sword fighting <laughs> is blades come into contact with each other and they're going to slide off each other. And if you don't have a cross guard of any type, which none of the swords, and it's, well, sorry, with the exception of one sword at the end, none of these swords have a cross guard at all. Now, I said this to some of my friends, and some of my friends are still big into uh, medieval weaponry. Um, and there's one who even has a sword fighting school just in Longford here. He said to me that Japanese style swords didn't have cross guards. So if you imagine a crusader sword, which is, if, if most of us are drawing a sword, that's what we're going to do. It's got a blade, it's got a T shape to it. Right? right. So the bar of the T is the cross guard. Japanese swords wouldn't have had these, but what they would have had is a thing called a tsuba, so T-S-U-B-A, so a tsuba. And a tsuba is a round disc which covers the top of the hand. Mm -hmm. These things are essential. Oh, so kind of like fencing swords, actually, right? So kind of like fencing swords, only instead of having the fencing sword should have come down into a cup shape. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so if we, when we're talking about the three musketeers or whatever, they go right. into uh, much more um, filigreed and, and uh, artistic things. I'm not saying I own one of those. I totally own one of those. Um, but <laughs> the suba was just a round disc, but it was definitely there. And it had the exact same function as European style cross guards which come into fashion in the 10th century, which were to stop the sword from coming down or the blades clashing, sliding along, and then chopping off the fingers of the person holding the sword, right? And none of the swords have this. It looks incredibly dangerous. It looks incredibly uncomfortable to wield. 
And the possibility of the sword slipping out of your hand seems to be magnified by a thousand, um, especially since they do a lot of their fighting in the rain. So, yeah, it drove me insane as we were going through the movie. And I must have mentioned it about 15 times to Sarah. So I apologize for crapping on about the swords, but they just would not work. And they are very, very dangerous. So they failed completely on the swords. So where do we go from there, Sarah? Yeah, so in terms of actually meeting our characters, so uh, we meet the nobleman Bartok, played by Morgan Freeman, who is a vassal of our nameless empire. And he tells his commander Raiden, played by Clive Owen, that he is now his heir, gives him the family sword, since since uh, although we have no race and gender, uh, or sorry, we have no uh, um, uh, racial or religious divides, we apparently still have gender divides, so his daughter definitely can't inherit anything. When I have departed this world, these lands will be in your care. My lord, my name will be yours to uphold. But your sword is to be passed to an heir. I am merely your retainer. You are the heir to my spirit. Um, and so he names Raiden as his heir, and then they basically go and hang out in the palace. Is there a reason that they go hang out in the palace? I actually they don't remember why go. they go. Where, why to go to visit Gezimot? Yeah, I actually don't remember why they go in the first place. They have been called to give over their taxes for the year. Ah, yes. And as part of giving over their taxes, they have to, or they're meant to give, or they're expected to give a gift to the minister. Um, Right. The idea being that this will grease the wheel and keep things moving. So effectively, you're dealing with bureaucracy, the same as bureaucracy would happen in pretty much any of these medieval systems you give a little bit to get a little bit of leeway. Right. But here the emphasis is on this bureaucracy being an especially corrupt one. So uh, our minister, Giza Mutt, who is played by a uh, Norwegian actor whose name I have completely forgotten. Um, uh, but he kind of looks like a weird version of Tommy Wiseau. Uh, he looks like a weird Tommy Wiseau. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a guy named Axel Henny. And I've seen him in a couple of things. He's also in... A season of 24. He's in the, the remake season of 24. The one oh, I never saw that one. Die Another Day, or Live Another Day. Um, uh, he's in a movie called Headhunters, starring Nicholas Coster-Waldu, uh, also known as Jamie Lannister, hmm. where he gets cuckolded by Jamie Lannister. Uh, I mean, you can't blame her. Yeah, it, Well, you definitely can't blame her, because he's a beautiful, beautiful man. And her husband is very good at playing sniveling, whiny people. Who doesn't think he is? Perhaps he did not understand what is expected of him. He understands perfectly. Mm. So in this, he's a kind of sniveling, whiny villain um, who we see kind of toting around to Pekingese and uh, being very upset that he is not being given a proper bribe. Um, So in retaliation for Bartok being so stubborn and not giving him a nice bribe, I think he gives him like a robe and then and like a nice box in the robe. And what does he do with the robe? Doesn't he like give it to the dog to sleep on or something? He gives it to his beloved Pekingese um, to sleep on. (laughs) Here, dog. Silk for your filth. The thing about this is everybody else has the sense to figure out that this is a bad move from Morgan Freeman's character. Morgan Freeman seems to think it's hilarious. 
Yes, he says, uh, you know, Clive Owens, uh, Raiden is like, so this is a really bad idea, right? You know, you just insulted him. And Morgan Freeman just goes, what? I gave him the box, too. The kind of fancy box that the room came in. A robe. Fine robe. You may also keep the box. <laughs> it's absolute. It's absolute dickery what Morgan Freeman does. Um, and Raiden... Clive Owen rightfully takes him aside, so we'll give him a better gift tomorrow. Um, and that's what happens in the, uh, the the 47 Ronan story that this is based on. But he says, I, I, we'll give him a better gift. And Morgan Freeman tells him not. And he says, no, I'm, we have to have a point where we stop this from happening. I, otherwise, the bribes are just going to become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, which is something you would be afraid of maybe happening. But at the same time, bribes have been happening probably for the last 1,000 years in any of these sort of city-states or large empires. And they wouldn't have been allowed to get to the point where they were crippling the actual nobles. And also, he's clearly giving him far less than he expects, which means that presumably the other members of the nobility are giving him things that are much more substantial. Exactly. Um, But he, apparently, Bartok is the only one of the nobles who doesn't play ball with Gezimot, and this clearly enrages the man. Yes, so he humiliates him by basically beating him with a stick. Uh, the stick looks astonishingly like Jafar's snake staff from Aladdin, um, just another good cross-cultural touch, I guess. Um, <laughs> and Bartok retaliates eventually and, uh, um, you know, and starts to fight back and, I guess, wounds him Um and this apparently is treason. You are not allowed to do violence against the emperor's minister. Yeah, at this point, we, um, well, maybe just before this, we have met um, Ito, who is uh, Gezamot's head of security. And he is the one who stops Bartok from killing Gezamot. Um, Gezamot just about manages to, to stick him a little bit with his sword. And it's at this point that Morgan Freeman is taken into custody and we are brought to meet the emperor yes so the emperor uh so first of all this is also really another fun cross-cultural touch so the uh the actor who plays the emperor is uh he happens to be an iranian man he's dressed in a manner which is very typical of uh, a kind of medieval muslim emperor caliph or other muslim ruler um but he is sitting court in what looks astonishingly like a christian cathedral and in fact, very possibly is. The whole thing is filmed in Prague, and I'm still curious as to whether that's St. Vitus. It looks like it might be. It definitely does look like St. Vitus. So for um, our listeners, if you know, if you've ever been to Prague, if you're lucky enough to have been to Prague, um, St. Vitus is a very narrow cathedral with lots of little smaller churches inside its main building. And this definitely looks like the main hall in St. Vitus's that has had some additions put onto it to make it look even more confusing to anybody watching the movie. Right, it's interesting in itself because it's a medieval cathedral. It's, uh, oh shoot, I think 14th century. Um, But at some point in the, I guess, 17th century, um, when Baroque was the height of architectural fashion, they added some, in my opinion, completely hideous Baroque architectural elements um, into this hall, which I think are a travesty and ruin the nice medieval cathedral. But otherwise, St. Vitus is very lovely. St. Vitus is very lovely, and the Baroque art is seemingly out of place, even to somebody with uh, as uncultured an eye as I have. Um, so I imagine it 
causes many a headache when you step inside it, Sarah. I also just hate Baroque art. That's that's just my thing. (laughs) (laughs) There's a beautiful mirror near the end of this movie that I'm sure you would absolutely love. Um, But Morgan Freeman is put on trial and which it's it's not even a trial. He doesn't get a chance to explain why anything was happening. He basically just gets asked, you know, what are your crimes? Do you confess? And he starts up and he goes, the only thing my crime is that I failed to kill Giza Mott. My crime is only that I failed to kill Giza Mott when I had the chance. When I had the chance, this obviously puts the court and uh, the emperor into some sort of mini meltdown and shock and many handbags were clutched. And the emperor, at the advice of Gizamot, who happens to be his cousin, I think it's implied, um, or somehow a friend of his anyway, I definitely think he says it's his cousin. Is he? Uh, I think he says that, but I, I could be wrong. Um, but organizes that it's Raiden who has to kill Bartok himself. Um, now, this seems like a very stylized version of what would happen in Japan where somebody who was disgraced like this would be given the option of carrying out Harry Carry or committing ritual suicide. In this case, they've had his uh, vassal or his, you know, his lieutenant actually execute him, which seems brutal and pointless. Um, and just seems to be, you know, here's here's you and your lord is about to die, but I'm going to add insult to your injury by making you do it. Your commander is fiercely loyal to you, Lord Bartok. And so it is fitting that you should meet your end by his sword. Should you refuse the order? All of Lord Bartok's blood relations will be executed as well. Minister. First Council. Right, I mean, it's very much not how the ritual suicide system would have worked, and uh, as we'll see in a bit in the original Legend of the 47 Ronin, that actually is how he was allowed to die, was by ritual suicide, which would be the much more honourable way to be executed. Now, the thing that I find funny about this is that Giza Mott is playing, uh, he's played as a weak character, um, a nervous character, and he's clearly got this vindictive side but when we're introduced to Clive Owen's character at the beginning he kills about five guys in single combat and then when the minister sends an aide to him he's an arrogant arrogant man and he's wanting to see Bartok Clive Owen says he won't the guy's talking down to him tells him that he's going to you know have him ruined or whatever and then all Raiden has to do is say his name and the emissary basically craps his pants. I'm certain that the Emperor himself would want to know who has been so charitable toward his enemy. An introduction would have been the right place for you to start. I'm Commander Raiden of the seventh rank. Your name is well known to me. Because Raiden is such a respected and well-known warrior, and yet Gizamot is clearly poking him with a stick at this point. 
Right, which seems like a really dumb idea. And I guess it's presumably because he realizes how dumb he was that he seems now extremely anxious about what is going to happen with him. Um, so he mostly seems to actually demonstrate both that he's evil and that he's anxious by beating his wife. Yeah, um, his wife is a very beautiful um, actress and we see her coming in. She's got blood on, it uh, looks like a bruise on her cheek. Her father comes to meet her and he's not going to say anything, but you can tell he's a powerful lord and he's not particularly happy with the situation. Right, so we have that dynamic and we also um, find out that at this point, um, Giza is very worried that Raiden is going to take revenge, probably because he has baited him a lot. Um, so he has his uh, his kind of main guard, Ito, um, basically ordered to watch Raiden to see if he's up to yes. anything. And Ito is the one that I said had played chess uh, with uh, Raiden. Raiden had won the chess game. Um, he seems to be an honorable man because at the point where... Uh, Mott's soldiers are having Bartok's family evicted from their house. Uh, one of them hits Bartok's wife in the face. Ito gives him a chance to apologize. When the guy doesn't apologize, Ito cuts his head from his shoulders. Don't touch her. These people are losing their home. You will treat them with respect. than half a second to show that he's not the same as these other soldiers he still has respect for Bartok's family yes poor Dina Arraz poor Dina Arraz uh, now we then get a wonderful one year jump um, to show that time has passed and we get to the first time uh, Sarah sent a text message to me saying hashtag let him die in this movie and it's for our hero Right. Yeah, the one-year time jump allows us to just go directly from Raiden actually seeming, I guess, relatively okay to him being just an absolute terrible excuse from a human, for a human being. Um, so he is now a drunk. He spends all of his time in taverns, basically drinking away all of their family's money. Um, we also see him whoring and gambling and then falling asleep in the streets. So the whoring is especially not great because he has uh, this very nice seeming wife. Let us get you home. I'm fine. Let me help, you can barely walk. I don't need your help. I'm fine. Um, who is very concerned about him and because he is destroying himself and his life and she is not especially happy. She is not very happy, but, but she still stands by her man. And as we were watching this, she seems to be, she's a, she's a very nice character. And I wanted to find out more about her because she seems to be working two jobs um, to keep the family going. She's At one point he goes and she gets nice bread, nice honey cakes, and he just kind of, eats them in about three seconds, doesn't even say thank you. And then he's like, she sold something. So she sold family, I think it was crockery she might have sold. Um, she's working as a seamstress and fixing dresses. She's doing laundry. And he's just coming and taking the money and going out and whoring and drinking. 
And the whole time I'm watching this, I'm thinking, what a piece of shit. This, like, this is my main character. This is the guy I'm, I'm going to support for the rest of this movie. I, I don't think so, Clive Owen. Yeah, so I hate him. Then he decides as the kind of final and, the, you know, as the kind of this is what I'm going to do now. He, uh, I guess, has not drunk enough. So he sells his sword. So this is the sword that uh, Bartok had given him, which, you know, has, so has a great deal of symbolic significance. Um, he sells it to what looks astonishingly like a medieval Jewish pawnbroker and then spends the money on a fancy bath and a fancy prostitute. This is a very, very fancy bat, and she's a very, very fancy prostitute. And then he goes back home, and his wife says to him, where's the sword? And he goes, here it is. And he just picks up another drink and drinks it. And at this point, she decides to leave him, which is brilliant because Bartok is a piece of shit. Where is it? What? Your sword. Here it is. I'm leaving. At the same time, we cut back to Giza, and Giza is spending money hand over fist, money that he doesn't own. He's clearly been taking massive bribes and using it to build up this huge... Uh, fortress in the middle of the city. Now, this is where myself and Sarah are having a bit of fun, is because clearly we're dealing with a Japanese-inspired story. We're dealing with Japanese-inspired architecture in a lot of places. It also seems to be set in Central Europe. The city where Giza Mott is living and where Raiden is now living appears to be Istanbul. It does. It even has these cisterns that look astonishing, like the, uh, like the ones in Istanbul. Uh, yeah, and um, we were watching it going, this movie literally covers all possible empires that were around at the time. We are Which, as I said, from... is, I think, kind of cool. That was That's probably the thing I like most about this movie. And he talks to his man, Ito, and Ito says, listen, he sold a sword, he's drinking, he's cheating on his wife, he's a despicable piece of shit. And Giza is still sitting there going, no, 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 he's going to come and get me. So he decides to do one of the worst things I've ever seen committed to a movie screen. Um, And I allow Sarah to explain this because, uh, yeah, I don't think I can do this justice, and I know she can. So Raiden goes to a whorehouse, as he is wont to do in this movie, and Giza arranges that he is offered as his prostitute for that evening, Bartok's um, still virgin daughter. He makes no effort whatsoever to help or save this girl, who I think is supposed to be maybe 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess maybe in the context, he's supposed to sort of get a cookie for the fact that he doesn't actually rape her himself and just leave so someone else can rape her. Now listen, no negotiating on this one. She's still a virgin.
Frieden. And the reason this scene left me with visceral angry is actually because of what happens slightly later on. But in this scene, she she acts the hell out of it in comparison to the other people in the, in the movie. She looks up and she sees Raiden sitting there. And it's like you can see genuine hope on her face. Yeah, she's so relieved for a second that, oh, thank God, it's my father's you know closest friend. I'm going to be okay. She's surrounded by three men, and then Raiden is there. Raiden, who is, let's just say, the god of war himself from the way people react to him. And she clearly thinks that he's there to save her. And he's going, it, it, Basically, she thinks that she's Maggie Grace's character in Taken, and he is Liam Neeson, and he's about to fuck some shit up. And he just stands up and walks out. And we know, like, let's be realistic here. Yes, as you said, Sarah... He didn't rape her himself. But that girl is getting left to not have a good time. I mean, she's left. She's being left in a brothel, essentially, as a prostitute, as far as we can tell. And there's no reason for us not to think so. So at this point, I'm. we were both firmly on the let him die train. Yeah. And then it got worse. It definitely does get worse. <laughs> so... As he's walking out, there's actually a close-up of his feet. And so this, I guess, is a reference to, uh, spoiler alert, the bit at the end of The Usual Suspects, um, uh, where you find out that Virgil is Kaiser Sosa and you see his walk change. Because it's the exact same thing that you see his walk change, that he goes from this drunken stumbling to walking like a normal human being. And so you see this with this close-up on his feet and then he goes and he meets the other soldiers bartok's other men and it turns out he's been faking the whole time and he was never a drunk so then there's all of these flashbacks it turned out that all of the times that he was drunk he was actually faking it turns out that when he sold his sword he had somebody then buy it back for him immediately it turns out that the fancy prostitute had a map on her back and he was just reading the map yeah see this is the massive problem I have with this part of the scene is that Raiden is trusting all of these other random men. He's trusting this random prostitute. Like, I mean, that map that was drawn on her back took a long time. The entire um, soldier force that he used to have, the 47 Ronin, as, we, as we're going to come to, to learn about them later on, have gotten jobs working inside Giza's new uh, fortress that he's building so that they can set traps and give ways of uh, ways for them to escape or to break up or uh, to break in later on into this impenetrable fortress. All of these men knew, this random prostitute knew, and you can guarantee that this wasn't the first time that somebody had passed a message to him this way because Ito's not going to walk in and watch him having sex with this random stranger. So there's clearly at least 50 to 75 people who know about all of this or who could, you know, give him away. He didn't trust his wife enough to let her know. So as far as she is concerned, he is actually cheating on her, abusive to her, turned into a drunk, and she is standing by his side and he is still treating her like shit when it could have taken maybe 30 seconds to take her aside and go, listen, I'm only faking this. There'll be payoff back in the future. And... 
it, it doesn't make any sense that they would have all of these loose ends available for them to find out the information. I mean, even at one point, somebody sees one of the former soldiers working in working in Gez's uh, or Giza's um, castle, and they just kill him. So they're clearly capable of just getting rid of somebody if they have information. Why are they just allowing him to be a piece of shit? And why did he allow his daughter or uh, his best friend's daughter to be treated in that way when he could have sent two of the other boys around afterwards to save her right which uh because i mean which actually pretty clearly i think doesn't happen no Um, because she doesn't she doesn't get out until the very end yeah and as i said the fact that he didn't trust his wife about this when there are so many other people who are in on this plan made me so incredibly angry so this this got another let him die at this point i think we were basically at this stage every Thing we said to each other was just let him die um yeah now at this point we find out that giza has killed his dog and also beat his wife again um and his father-in-law shows up um i think his father's that what what's his father-in-law's name sarah august because we're going august. french now i guess yeah august um clearly played by a japanese actor um august uh, and he has uh, given Giza, a large Baroque mirror. It is one of the ugliest things I've ever seen. And to make things worse, it's got fading on the mirror. Like it's a new mirror he's given him. And it's got faded and patches on the actual mirror. It's really weird. It's like it has like fake antiquing. I mean, I guess it's like distressed jeans. It's like a distressed mirror. Exactly. It's like a distressed mirror. But it's what you would imagine a Baroque mirror would look like now. Right. But... Back in the time, it shouldn't have looked like this. But he gives him this very large mirror, and obviously Giza loves this because he loves himself and he gets a chance to stare at himself in the mirror. Yes, yeah, so he's a, he's a big fan of the mirror. And so August is also helping, um, it turns out, Raiden and his men because he really wants to get his daughter free of her disgusting, abusive husband. Good. So... Uh, Raiden decides to make an attack on the castle. Now, as I said, they've been building this um, fort up and putting in lots of defensive measures, but his men have been sneaking in and taking maps so that they know where they're going, they know where all of the defensive issues are, and they've left weapons around, they've left little bits of what appear to be gunpowder. Now, I'm not an expert in gunpowder, but I know Sarah has done some research on this. Sarah, would this have been contemporaneous or when you would expect to get gunpowder in what's effectively a medieval European setting? More or less, yeah. I mean, so as I said, we're kind of vague about the time period, but uh, gunpowder was actually used for military purposes in China as early as about the 10th century. Um, It seems to have been known in Japan by about the 13th at the latest, maybe even a little bit earlier. Um, It wasn't very popular to actually be used for military purposes until a bit later, so the kind of, I think, 15th, 16th century. Um, but it was known and uh, the Islamic world also had gunpowder by about the 13th century and uh, the and Christian Europe seems to have known it existed by around then um, and was clearly using it for military purposes by about the early 14th. So gunpowder in the way that they are using it so they don't have firearms they're just kind of using it as an explosive. Um, this is actually just about right. Yeah, and so I I think you said this to me at the time as well, and I, I greatly appreciate this. And I'm going to be fair to the movie for a second. This entire action sequence is actually really well done. Um, it is. So 
they're sneaking in. It's a heist-style movie where they have to get every single one of their steps right. So they start sneaking in and they have to go and make sure that the bells are switched off and his men are moving silently and taking out each of the other people as they am. They put rings up through which they have to fire arrows and obviously they're the best archers in the world as well. All of these Ronin are exceptionally good at what they're doing. But like all good military plans, something is going to go wrong at some point and one of Giza's men sets off an alarm and this causes the gates to be dropped and everything is locked and they're not going to be getting on further. And this is when the Baroque mirror comes or Baroque mirror comes into play because Raiden has hidden a young warrior inside who breaks his way out with the help of Giza's wife, who was obviously in on it. I think it's interesting that Raiden's wife wasn't allowed to be in on the story when Giza's wife who was getting beaten regularly and living with the man was allowed to be in on this, but she helps him escape. Yeah, um, because, I don't know, I guess her father trusts her since he is less of a garbage human being than Raiden, who exactly. does not trust his wife. And, and he has been... Uh, so this young man, we saw his name is Gabriel, um, uh, because again, we have to have a very Christian-sounding name for this kid. Uh, he... Um, has been trained by Raiden and Raiden's lieutenant um, throughout the... I'm not sure how long it's been, so it's been a year, but he was obviously being trained to be a new knight uh, and to be part of the household. Um, And he breaks out and he comes along with his two swords and he fights off the soldiers from the inside and releases the door mechanism to let Raiden into the keep proper. Now, at this point, we get a couple of little flashbacks of um, Cliff Curtis's character has basically raised this boy himself and his wife. I think it's implied couldn't have children, so he's been looking after him. And Gabriel ends up dying, and Cliff yeah. has a couple of sad moments before then deciding that it's time to go kill a bunch of other dudes. I mean, there are a lot of dudes left to kill. There are a lot of dudes left to kill, including Giza's right-hand man, Ito. Yeah, so uh, Ito has been, I th- I would say, presented throughout as a person who is obviously on the wrong side, but who, uh, within that context, is supposed to be honorable. Um, so, of course, he's the one who has the kind of big fight with Raiden uh, as one of the kind of climactic moments. Um, this is, I would say, a pretty cool-looking fight. They do a kind of pre-modern parkour thing for a while. Um, uh, you know, they've got their, I would say, somewhat cool-looking, if really inaccurate, swords. Mm-hmm. The, there's some wall running, there's some flips, there's some very acrobatic fighting from two men who don't really look to me like they would necessarily be that acrobatic, but they're clearly very, very talented fighters. And I, I, I'll agree with Sarah in this. I really enjoyed this fight between the two. Yeah, like it was very stylized but in a very cool way. Um, so this is actually a pretty cool scene. Yeah, uh, and it ends with Raiden and Ito... They're at the top of some stairs. Ito seems to be getting maybe a little bit of the better of the two of them. And Raiden pulls himself backwards and the two of them fall off the stairs and down onto a flat surface. They both get up with their swords. Miraculously, neither of them has a concussion, apparently. Miraculously, okay. They both swing with their swords. And because Raiden is using the super duper special sword that was given to him by Bartok, his blade is sharper and stronger than Ito's, and he cuts through Ito's blade, meaning that Ito, even though he's a very good and talented fighter, is effectively using a shorter version of the same sword, 
And when they go for a perfectly symmetrical killing move... Raiden gets there first because, yeah. First, because his sword is slightly longer. And Ito's is just about to touch Raiden's neck. And Raiden's is buried in his neck because he'd cut off the top five inches of the thing. And it's... I. I Genuinely, I thought that was a very cool and apt way to do it, especially since Ito was greatly impressed that he that Raiden, who's just a soldier um, or just a knight, had been given what is effectively a special weapon by his master, because that would not have been the norm at all in this society. This is a moment man's blade. Where did you come by it? It was a gift. Oh, my master. I have never heard of such generosity from law to retainer. No, and it's kind of like he got the, you know, Valyrian still seal blade from Game of Thrones. That's pretty much exactly what it's like. It's like you are just a random soldier. You shouldn't have a Valyrian steel blade. And it shows that your your lord was a good man. And as Sarah said, Ito is it's a character that shows up in a lot of these movies, and it shows up in a lot of Japanese um, fables as well, where somebody is shown to have been a very good person in themselves personally, but they are on the wrong side in a conflict. But they are so honourable that they're not going to turn their back on the man that they have been pledged to or that they are serving. Right. So uh, he gets what I think the end of the movie is very much kind of presenting as a kind of deserved honorable death. Yes. And then Raiden decides it's time to go kill Giza. Yes. So he goes and he finds Giza, who's hanging out in his bedroom. Um, Giza, I guess, is just kind of sitting there with a knife, basically. Mm hmm. And seems to think that the best possible way to deal with things is to run forward with this teeny tiny dagger at Raiden. And of course, on the way there with his tiny dagger, it gets his head chopped off. Only time will tell how we are remembered. Something you no longer have. This, this scene legit makes me laugh. Giza, who's been coded as being a wimp the entire way through, Raiden has just cut his way through. Effectively, a hundred men stands in there with his sword, looking like, as I've mentioned before, looking like a god of war. Uh, Giza tries to talk to him. Raiden's having none of it. And it's legit 15 feet. He decides that he's going to run at him with his knife. What did he think was going to happen? I mean, so I read it as no pathetic way desperation, was... basically. Desperation, you would allow him to come close and try no, a killing move. But this is just stupidity. No, I mean, it's that he's he's presented as being so pathetic and so militarily inept and weak that he doesn't even realize that that's obviously what you should do. Mm. <laughs> so it's just kind of a panic I, 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 move. I will say this. I was delighted that it went down like this. He didn't get any chance to 
defend himself. He didn't get any chance to talk shit at anyone because Raiden wasn't having anything to it. It's one sword stroke. Head is cut from his shoulders. Yep. Just it's something that should happen more often. Just just cut your enemy's head off and move along. Yeah, exactly. Cut their heads off and let God sort them out. We'll talk about that quote whichever, and its origins in another episode. Which whichever God you think that actually exists. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens then, sir? Um, so at that point, uh, you know, they have now uh, one, uh, they do rescue Bartok's daughter at this point, and they inform her that her father's honor has been restored because apparently in this movie that makes up for her probably having been brutally raped multiple times. And then we move on yeah. to the emperor who needs to figure out what to do with these people because he has something of a conundrum. So on the one hand, it is clearly treason to basically break into the palace of the emperor's right-hand man and kill him. That actually seems fair as far as laws go, that that's treason. That, that does seem uh, quite treasonous in this case. Um, but on the other hand, as one of his counselors tell him, the populace is clearly on the side of Raiden and his men. Um, and so they're going yeah. to have some difficulties on their hands if they execute them. It's actually Auguste. Yes, that's right. The only reason you are all here is because I am without a first council. Now will someone speak their mind? My lord, it would be prudent to recognize that to the people, these men are heroes. Yeah, he sidles up and says, um, I'm sorry, your, uh, what would you call an emperor? Your, it's not your majesty. It's not excellency, is it? It might be Excellency. It yes, might be says, Excellency. It is. It is Excellency. Well done, sir. So he comes up and he says, Your Excellency, uh, these men are beloved by the populace. If we kill them all, it's going to make the populace very angry and you don't want to have the your average man, your commoner, being that pissed off because it will lead to sedition. So he comes up with the plan, and obviously Clive Owen was in on this at the beginning, which is that all of the other Ronin would be left alive, but that Clive Owen would be the one who gets killed. Now, as Sarah says, not sure that would actually solve the problem, but 100% behind Raiden getting killed in this situation. Let him die. Let him die, with the world's biggest hashtag. Yes. Uh, he also has a flat either it's either a flashback or a vision where he gets to talk to his wife one last time. I hope it's a vision because I don't want her to forgive him, and she apparently does, and I don't want her to in real life. Um, so I you know. genuinely hope that this is him imagining this because there's no reason for her whatsoever to in any way accept him back into a hug and a kiss is what she gives him. And it's like, no, not at all. Like, this guy doesn't deserve that semi-happy ending. He does not. Um, so he, at least in his mind, I'm hoping it's in his mind and not reality, gets the happy ending of his wife forgiving him for having been just garbage hmm. um, and not trusting but her to... One thing that did... Oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, not um... trusting her to be a part of the plan, yeah. Uh, but one thing that did cheer me up was that he gets executed by a guy who's got an actual sword with a cross guard. Yeah, so that's exciting. So we finally uh, get to see a good sword. But one thing that annoyed me about this is 
they kind of sequel baited it where Raiden's eyes are closed the entire time until the sword's just about to cut down and then he opens his eyes. And that's the kind of thing which they put in where they're like, maybe he didn't die. <laughs> but I'm just going to say it now. And this isn't getting a sequel. Raiden's dead. I am relieved this movie did poorly enough that it's not going to get a sequel because I do not want him to be alive because I hate him. <laughs> I hope your movie failed because your main character is such a shit I think it did. I don't think this movie was especially well-liked. I, this movie showed up. Now, obviously, because we're doing the podcast, it's clear that I'm a fan of this sort of thing. This movie managed to go under my radar. And for a movie that features the 47 Ronin myth and also features, um, and also features uh, sword fighting and revenge, the, the, you, that's like saying... A movie about electromagnetism suddenly disappeared and was off the radar. Like, it, it shouldn't happen. This is my kind of thing. And I didn't even see anything related to this until it showed up on my Netflix. Right, which I assume just showed up because we were watching all sorts of other ridiculous things. That's exactly what happened. Because we were watching other stuff for the podcast, then it was like, because you watched this pile of steam and crap, you might like this style of pile of steam and crap. Yeah, Netflix has developed a really odd uh, opinion of my taste at this point. Um, I think it actually popped in realistically because we watched The Last Kingdom. Oh, yeah, that makes that's sense. That's when that's when I first saw it. So another bleak movie where loads of people die for no reason. Yes. Uh, and that's the end of our movie. Uh, our hero has been killed. The land has been set back. Giza has been killed. And it's basically a revenge thing where he goes off and he kills the dude. And I'm thinking... There were a million other ways you could have done this that didn't require you to be such a massive, massive tool. There are. That was not the choice that they made. And I I think arguably he actually might even be worse in this than he is in the original legend. Maybe. <laughs> well, we can talk about that in a few minutes. One thing I will ask there. He waits for a year and more for this entire fortress and then they break into the fortress. Would it not have been better for him to sneak in in the middle of the night when there was no fortress? Yeah, you would think. Like when um, they're in the middle of building things and they're like trying their best with the guard, but the guard is kind of dealing with the fact that the walls aren't real yet. That should have been the better time. That's, that's what I'm thinking. Or um, if his wife is in on it, just give her a knife and have him slit, her tro- slit his throat. That definitely would have been the best plan, actually. It would have been for Giza's wife to have just slit his throat in the middle of the night. In the middle of the or night. Or his father-in-law. Or his father-in-law just walked into the thing. He was like, oh, no, I mean, Ito's a really good warrior or whatever, but Ito clearly wasn't happy to see um, Giza's wife with the bruises on her face. So I can't imagine he would have done anything vicious about it. And if he did, that's where Raiden can come in and kick his ass because he's clearly a better warrior. And I'm pretty sure there also were scenes where Auguste was basically alone with his daughter and Giza. Exactly. And Giza's not going to be able to fight off Auguste. Because, yeah. as we know, Giza's just not particularly military-based. But this leads us into our second section, which is Vera et Falso, where we discuss what the movie got right and what the movie got wrong. Or more accurately, Sarah's going to educate me on what the movie got right and what the movie got wrong. And I'm going to do my best to sing it at the beginning. So... Vera et falso. <laughs> Guys, it's never going to get better. 
never going to get better. Uh, continue. We're also never going to actually get a jingle. We're going to stick with this. Sarah thinks we're going to stick with this, but we'll see. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I would say is kind of that I wanted to talk about, at least, is that so this movie, as we mentioned before, presents the medieval world, or at least this kind of pseudo medieval world as one in which religion and ethnicity are unimportant. And I have mixed feelings about this choice for various reasons. So on the one so, hand, yeah. So are you, the movie makes it clear or seem as if none of these things are important. But every other movie that we've watched together would indicate the exact opposite. Right. And so the other thing is that the movies that we have watched tend to indicate that it is very important. I mean, honestly, mostly just by having the entire um, cast of the movie be white Christian people. And I do appreciate that they didn't do that, um, that they're uh, that they are able to have a somewhat more diverse cast. Although I do still think there's something of a problem with whitewashing when you have a story that is ostensibly about or adapted from something that is coming from Japan and your main hero and main villain are white dudes. But beyond that, um, but I do think there is something of an issue with them going out of their way to just to actually talk about the fact that there is this society that doesn't have a problem with racism or um, with prejudice based on religion and then not actually deal with that as an issue. They don't actually raise any questions about how it is that this particular medieval society uh, came to exist in that particular way which I might have liked to see if they're going to go out of the, if they're going to go out of their way to actually comment on it rather than just have a diverse cast, which I think in some ways is actually a better way to do it. Yeah. Um, the thing that, I, as we were watching it, that, that stood out to me is that they make no effort to nail down what the religion is. Whereas, as you said um, a few times, is that each of the regions that are semi-represented would have been very strongly in their own faith. Yeah, I mean, religion is really, I would say, the most fundamental uh, kind of category of identity in the Middle Ages. And so the fact that it's then completely irrelevant, I would say, in this movie, that they kind of refer to the fact that there are religions, but nobody actually seems to have a religion that they believe in, um, seemed very odd to me. Would you say it's better or worse at representing the religious aspect than First Night was, which seemed to somehow ignore uh, Arthur's super religiousness at various points, but then also had him praying at altars at least twice during the movie. In some ways, I would say this is actually worse because First Night at least had moments where they kind of acknowledged that people took religion seriously, even if they didn't do a very good job of demonstrating what medieval Christianity actually entailed. Um, uh, but this very much acted like religion was something that wasn't important at all. And uh, that's really not an accurate way to depict the medieval world. Yeah. Now, what else did they get uh, wrong, Sarah? Um, so the other thing that, uh, well, so first I'm going to say one other thing is that one of the things that they made a choice about is that um, they decided that they were going to have this kind of imaginary society in terms of their being um, a kind of lack of prejudice based on religion or based on ethnicity. But apparently we still have to have pretty much the same gender system. Um, so women still can't be knights or have any power and in fact actually seem to be doing worse than they are in some medieval societies. 
with one hmm. notable exception, which is inaccurate. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, because you said this to me at the time. I was like, Re I didn't realize this. Well, obviously, I realized the one about the Christians because that was a major sticking point um, <laughs> around about the time of Protestantism. But uh, yep. <laughs> so what is the other thing that they majorly got wrong? Uh, so Naomi, Raiden's wife, uh, comes up and informs him that she is divorcing him and announced that she, that's, that's something that she is doing, that that is her choice and that she gets to do that. There is no society in which she could have done that. So in medieval Christendom, divorce isn't really an option, um, as you know, it still is kind of complicated in Catholicism today. Um, <laughs> it, uh, I can tell you as somebody who is currently um, initiating those proceedings, it will take me four years to even get to the point where I can discuss it properly. And that is a change even from medieval society where you could get an annulment, um, but that would jeopardize, but that would potentially jeopardize the legitimacy of your children. Um, because it really said that the marriage never existed and was never valid in the first place. Um, hmm. You could also get a kind of separation, a kind of legal separation or a separation of goods. So you can, you know, divide up money. You don't have to live together, but you're still legally married and can't marry somebody else. Um, so that's how it would have worked in medieval Christian society. Um, and in the and for medieval Muslims and Jews, and also in medieval Japan, there is divorce, but divorce can only be initiated by men. Um, the way divorce works is that the husband actually has to, in all of those societies, is essentially some variant on the husband has to inform his wife that he's divorcing her or draw up a divorce document, and only he has the right to divorce her. She has zero right to divorce him. Uh, this is actually still a huge problem in Orthodox Jewish communities. That is mad because as a, a Christian, I assumed that um, all divorce was acceptable in Judaism. So when when did it become acceptable for women to divorce their husbands? It's technically still not. Oh, wow. Um, so as I said, so if you're Orthodox, still it's not. Um, if you're in, say, the conservative movement, what you might do is um, you would actually introduce basically a condition into your Jewish marriage contract that would say uh, this is actually something that like they um, the rabbinical assembly of the conservative movement actually wrote a whole thing up for people to do this, that you actually basically write a condition into the marriage contract saying that if the wife wants a divorce or if you get a you know civil divorce, that uh, the husband also has to grant her the religious divorce. But it's a condition. It's still, even for um, kind of less traditionally observant Jews, it's still technically not um, permissible for the wife to just unilaterally divorce her husband without there being some kind of pre-existing agreement on that being something they can do. Wow. It's actually, yeah, it's actually a big problem in Israel, too, because Israel only has Jewish religious marriage. Or, well, yeah. it only has religious marriage. If you're Christian or Muslim, you could marry, you could have a Christian or Muslim religious ceremony. But if you're Jewish, you could only have a Jewish religious ceremony. And so, so there, yeah. So there are no, there's no such thing as civil partnership or civil marriage? No, they recognize civil marriages that happen outside the country. Um, but if you want to get married, like if you're an Israeli citizen and want to get married in Israel, it's basically you're having an Orthodox Jewish marriage. Um, and so there are even not especially religious Israeli Jews who end up in this situation where um, the wife wants a divorce and the husband doesn't and is, you know, refusing to give it to her. And a lot of these cases are cases where he's also abusive or something like that. So <sighs> it's a big problem. Yeah. 
that is a massive problem Whew. and just like the last time we recorded when we were talking about first night that's these are things which a lot of people wouldn't be aware of even in the modern uh, society and it's, it's interesting to learn about it also makes it makes it very hard not to respond with jesus or what the hell is that or I, I don't understand how that goes but obviously it's developed over a, a long period of time it doesn't make it any better but it's still fucking shocking to to somebody even somebody living in a still slightly conservative country as ireland is but sarah and i think this will lead into our next segment as well what did they get right in this movie so one of the things that i think this movie actually does really well in some ways is that it's actually a pretty good adaptation of the 47 Ronin legend. Um, so this was something that I wasn't that familiar with. Um, obviously, you can't all be an expert on everything. Um, I teach on medieval Europe and the Islamic world, but not really on medieval Japan. Um, and so this wasn't something that I was as familiar with, but I spent some time doing some research. And this really did, I would say, get at a lot of the um, details and themes of that legend, which is actually a pretty fascinating one. Yeah. So this leads into our next section, which is Historia et Veritas, which is uh, something which was actually real from the time. So Sarah's going to tell us about the 47 Ronin legend. Yeah, so this is a legend, but it's a legend that seems to um, have some element of truth. Um, so there are some things that we know for sure happened. There are some things that uh, seem to have been kind of added on later in various fictionalized versions. Um, and so what I'm going to do now is a kind of combination of the two to some extent. Uh, so in 1701... Um, you have uh, uh, two uh, daimyo, um, apologies if I'm not pronouncing this well, I do not know Japanese, um, but uh, two basically feudal lords. Um, so they're expected to pretty much organize a reception um, for the emperor and for um, his and for some of his kind of most important people. And so they're then supposed to be instructed in court etiquette by somebody named Kira. So this is our Gizemot. Um, so they come, they're supposed to be instructed, and this relationship almost immediately goes really sour. And in fact, one of the sticking points, at least according to some versions of the story, is that he expected a bribe and they weren't willing to give him a bribe or they didn't give him a nice enough bribe um, or some kind of issue along those lines. So in the original version of the story, there's actually um, two men who are actually each independently important feudal lords. One of them basically is not is still um, very much in conflict with Kira, but his men basically behind his back give Kira a nice bribe. And so then Kira starts being nicer to him. And so they're getting along better. Meanwhile, however, so these are these are the men Kamei and Asano. Uh, yes, so Kamai is uh, the lord whose uh, who's men basically behind his back give Kira a bribe. And so, you know, their relationship starts getting better because once Kira gets his bribe, he starts being nicer to Kamei. He, however, continues to be basically just openly insulting all the time to Asano. So this obviously means things aren't going well. And so at some point, Asano attacks him and uh, injures him. So similarly to what we saw in our movie today, the injury is relatively minor, but it's a huge offense to attack this imperial official 
and it's actually even a huge offense to draw your sword within um like within the imperial palace basically that uh, to even draw a weapon is considered to be extremely offensive um and potentially treason basically uh, so one of the big differences that you do have, however, and this is something that I thought, you know, the movie did that didn't especially make sense, as we talked about before, is um, his friend is not forced to kill him. Um, he is allowed to ritually commit suicide, which would be the kind of most honorable way to kill somebody or to execute yeah. somebody. And they did this, I'm assuming, in the movie um, just to distance itself a little bit from Japanese culture. Um, or ancient Japanese culture, because they're clearly picking and choosing from other areas as well. So I'm assuming they didn't want to have proper ritual suicide in that movie, which isn't actually set in Japan. Right, because that would have been a very distinctive thing, because that's not something you would have seen at all in in the Christian or Muslim worlds. So Asano is killed, um, his goods are confiscated, and his family, his his goods are confiscated to an extent that his family is also essentially sent into ruin. Um, And his retainers, his military force, his samurai, um, are are now made ronin which is a term that actually means basically vagrant or wanderer, literally, and refers to samurai that no longer have a leader. Um, so he has about 300 men, and about and 47 of them decide that they're going to swear revenge. And in this as well, you see this basically really complicated plan that lasts um, like a year and a half, according um, to the original legend. So the leader of this group, Oishi, so this is uh, our Raiden, our Clive Owen character, um, did in fact seek to lull suspicion by presenting himself as a drunk and hanging out in brothels and taverns all the time. Um, and meanwhile, the others, you know, become merchants or laborers and get positions. So they're actually able to be in Giza's household. Um, so he apparently just divorced his wife in order to basically protect her from any possible retaliation, which is not great still. He didn't treat her like shit. He at least divorced her and let her go do something else instead of waiting for her to divorce him, which she couldn't have done in actual 18th century Japan. So, (laughs) um, and sent his children off with her as well. Um, but I think his oldest son was given the choice to join him and did. Um, so uh, meanwhile, you have all of these other Ronin who are gaining positions in Giza and, uh, Giza Kira is the guy's actual name in Kira's household. Uh, One even marries the daughter of the architect who is building Kira's house, uh, which is real commitment, and you kind of feel a little sorry for that woman. But uh, this is a this is a long con. Yeah, right. Uh, no, it really isn't. So the whole thing is it's like a year and a half. Um, so mm. they finally attack in 1703. They kill a number of Kira's retainers. Kira briefly escaped and was eventually discovered, but was eventually discovered. So demonstrating that the Ronin themselves are fairly honorable, they give Kira the option to commit ritual suicide. And the way in which he is presented in the original legend as being this kind of cowardly, unimpressive person is that he essentially refuses to do so. He's too afraid to do so. Um, And so eventually Oishi just has to kill him. I remember reading about this as a kid and they gave him multiple opportunities and to the point where they were even going to allow him to to kill himself. uh, But they were also going to give him the opportunity for a clean death in combat. 
and who refused to take a clean death in combat as well. So eventually they had to hold him down and Ishii uh, cut his head off with the dagger that had been used by Asano to kill himself. Yeah. So he is eventually killed. Um, his head is taken to a temp is taken to a temple, which is uh, actually where Asano is also buried and laid at Asano's tomb. Um, uh, fun fact: they actually have a, a receipt from the temple, which is uh, recognizing that they gave the head to one of Kira's friends to be buried elsewhere. <laughs> so there's actually receipts of them transferring. Yeah, the head. they have the actual document, which as somebody who spends a lot of time and, in fact spent two hours today looking at medieval documents. I thought that was really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's cool. They have the actual document indicating the kind of transfer process of Kira's head. Um, <laughs> now, I already know the answer to this, Sarah, but did they allow the 47 Ronin to survive and just kill off one of them? They did not, which in a way actually makes a lot more sense, potentially. Um, so instead they decide they do in fact have to execute all 47 of them. Um, but the way in which they mediate this execution is that they are allowed the opportunity to commit ritual suicide, which all of them do. There seems to have been one who was pardoned, maybe because he was very young um, and he kind of lived to an old age um, and survived, but the rest of them all killed themselves. They were buried in the same place as Asano. Um, and in this temple that then actually became something of a sort of pilgrimage site and a place of veneration. And apparently you can still see their clothing and armor. Oh, now I've already said before that I would love to go to Japan, but now I doubly want to go to Japan and visit this place. Yeah, so I think that'd be really fascinating. So this story uh, became extremely popular and people actually debated whether the Ronin were right in what they did or not. Um, and it became the subject of visual art, of plays, and then eventually of, you know, movies and things like that. Um, and Ali, you have some recommendations, right, for other versions of the story? Yeah, there are, there are several versions of this. I mean, a lot of them are bad, a lot of them are, are terrible. Um, but I'm going to focus on three. Um, now, one of them is a movie, and two of them are long-form TV shows. Uh, you can get dubbed versions of them all if you just go onto Amazon and just type in the name that I'm going to mispronounce badly here. But I've actually watched all three of these, um, and they're excellent. They're well worth watching. They're adaptations which try to go as close to the source material as possible. So there's very little that you're going to see where stuff is stylized or they've decided to change characters particularly much. The one which I'm going to talk about first is from um, the, it's called, ah, no, this is hard for me to pronounce, but Daishush Ingura, right? And this was a TV show um, version of the thing starring Toshiro Mifun. Uh, it was done in the late sixties, and it had I think it's been a long right. It's been a long time since I watched it. It's upwards of fifty episodes. Oh wow, that's a lot. Uh, to tell this entire story, and Toshiro Mifun, um, an amazing actor and the only man who's ever actually genuinely looked good with a top knot. Uh, he plays Ishii's character in this, and. Uh, or a Raiden's character, if you will. So he's the leader of the 47 Ronin. <clears throat> and it goes into great detail. There are entire episodes, there are, there are little half-hour episodes. Um, there are entire episodes where effectively nothing happens. Hmm. 
and it's just people discussing what's going on. There are two episodes which are just following him getting drunk and falling over and various interactions he has. And it's just really well done. Um, now, again, you have to take into account that it's a Japanese TV show from the 70s or from the, the late 60s, early 60s, actually. So it's not going to be have amazing uh, or what we would consider amazing acting, but it's well worth watching. You can get them uh, in English dubs. You can get them with English subtitles and, and I recommend it. There's another version, which was a movie version, which came out in 1978, which is called Swords of Vengeance. Mm. And in this one, Tashiro Mifun plays the equivalent of Ito's character. So he's playing oh, huh. uh, he's playing the guy that Raiden ends up having to fight with at the end. So he's effectively played both ends of the same fight That's in cool. different uh, adaptations. Uh, this is an excellent movie. If you're into that... Right, I was going to say, if you like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, um, which you shouldn't, but if you do, uh, think it's... It's as epic as that movie without any of that wushu dancing through trees nonsense, <laughs> um, which uh, I know people enjoy their um, magical realism. <laughs> Drives me insane. So it's like it's a it's a kind of like an epic version of the story. It's two. It's near, I was going to say it's two and a half hours long. It's definitely one. It's it's nearly three hours long, which tells the entire tale and is really well done. The action scenes are really well done. The um, acting is exemplary and when you watch it you're generally sitting there and you can see why this would have such a heavy impact on uh, Japanese culture and Japanese society right mm. and then the last one is uh, it came out in 1999 it's called Genroko Ryo, uh, Ryogan which is you know the Japanese way of saying Ronin so the, 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 the lost warriors or whatever and this is another TV adaption and it's 49 episodes long. It's much easier to watch than the other ones. It goes on in a fairly good clip. I don't think there's any episode that doesn't have at least one action scene in it. And it's it's good. It's like uh, myself and Sarah both like 24. So if you think of it as like a Japanese medieval version of 24, because these dudes are going around making sure shit gets done. Hmm. Um, so I recommend all three of those. They're really good and all well worth watching. And there is... Uh, the movie 47 Ronin, which came out in, I think it was actually 2015 as well. No, it might have been before. It might have been 2012 or 2013, starring Keanu Reeves hmm. uh, as Ishii. And um, it's also got stylized violence and tries to tell the full story, but it's also got like weird dragons and stuff because, you know, Japan. Why not dragons? <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I would recommend all of those. The, the TV shows are much harder to watch, but Swords of Vengeance is well worth tracking down. Neat. So those are probably much better adaptations of this story in a lot of ways, but I thought this did an interesting job of not having it be exactly set in that particular world, but of being a kind of interesting adaptation that got at some of the same themes and plot points. Um, so yeah. I actually thought I, it was, this, that aspect was kind of well done. This is a better movie than the 47 Ronin is. Um, the Keanu Reeves but that one has so, dragons uh, uh, that one does have weird <laughs> dragons and mysticism thrown in but this leads us into our next segment our final well maybe our second to final segment uh, where we come up with our own version of what this movie will be and what generally happens is Sarah comes up with a really good entertaining and interesting sounding story and then I come up with some sort of pile of crap but I think I have nailed it this week I'm going to let Sarah go first in our uh, 
our segment okay. and then I'm going to blow you away with um, with the movie that I have come up awesome. with. Awesome. So this segment is called Fabula Nostra and it goes Fabula Nostra. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even cutting that. That's that's how it's No, going. yeah, we, that's that's what we're doing. <laughs> Uh, Sarah, what is your version of this movie? So um, I'm going back to medieval Europe just because that's what I actually know a lot about. Um, But I was inspired by this movie to uh, have a movie called Last Nights, um, which is inspired by the story of another group of, of a group of people who were the kind of last nights of their type, at least. And uh, to also do it in a kind of... uh, semi-fantasy world um so in something that is a kind of medieval-esque universe um but that there is magic and that since we're going into having magic um of basically having a kind of uh race-blind and gender-blind casting um so the inspiration for this would be the knights templar so this is a military religious order that's initially associated with crusading and um, so mm-hmm. in the 14th century, um, the Crusades are not going super well, so they are a bit less appreciated in many ways than they have been previously. And so because of that, one of the kings of France is able to get away with doing something pretty horrible. Um, so this is Philip IV or Philip the Fair of France, who is called that uh, because he is good looking, not because he's just. Um, <laughs> That's that's how I got the nickname. <laughs> it's Philippe Le Bel in French, so. Um, oh, yeah. nice. Philippe the Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so Philip the Gorgeous is deeply in debt to the <laughs> Templars, and so instead of like paying them back, he decides that instead he will basically spread rumors about them practicing various heretical rites, force them under torture to confess to practicing these rites and then burn them at the stake and then pressure the Pope a few years later into having the order officially disbanded. Um, so my movie, The Last Nights, would tell a story that is inspired by that, uh, but it would be in this kind of fantasy version of the medieval world. Um, so there would be still a kind of religion of some kind that people are taking seriously, but the religion would also involve magic and there would be some kind of magical practices um, maybe the issue would be that the particular kind of rites that they were accused of performing might be rites associated with a different religion um, and a specific kind of magic linked to a different religion. Um, and that um, they would be kind of like fighting, doing magic, um, but that eventually there would be this kind of tragic end where they are all executed, basically. So not a very cheerful movie, but I think it would be really fun. Damn, this... Oh. I kind of want to take back what I said at the start where all my hubris about me having a better movie because I would 100% watch that movie, especially if you could cast some people that I really like. Sarah, who would you uh, put in this movie? So I think that for our main kind of central Knights Templar, um, I think would be fantastic uh, Lupita Nyong'o and Idris Elba. I think would be amazing. Yep, yep. You have me on board. I am I am fully intersexual, so as as uh, are we all. I would watch anything with that man in it. And as my Philip the Fair esque character, ever since I saw Thor Ragnarok, I am kind of obsessed with Kate Blanchett as an evil villain. And so I want Kate Blanchett to play <laughs> that character. Um not since you saw Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I have tried to forget as much as possible about Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. 
<laughs> um, yeah, she makes an excellent villain. Um, yeah, uh, Sarah, I, I'm going to lay my money down and start financing this movie because it sounds exactly like what's something I would watch. Well, I would definitely watch this movie, but I bet I would watch whatever you come up with. So you should share your version. <clears throat> right. Now, I was sitting around thinking about this today and I went last night and it sounds like it's going to be an awesome action movie. And I was thinking about going with the Knights Templar and then I said to myself, no. I'm going to go completely different, Sarah. So what I have envisaged is that we are going to make a medieval teen comedy. Ooh. And in our medieval teen comedy, it's going to focus on three brothers. And I'm going to get the casting out of the way right now. They're effectively triplets. They are going to be played by Dane DeHaan, Ansel Elgort, and Alden Ehrenreich. And I still can't I like tell to them apart. Them, that guy. I can't tell them all, right? So we got Solo, we got Baby Driver, and we've got the guy that everyone thinks is now going to be a hero, despite the fact he's clearly a villain and everything he should be in. But these are our three guys, and they are going to play three young men who, I was going to say brothers, they might not necessarily be brothers, but they're on the verge of becoming knights. Now, they're doing this as very young men, and they're all the youngest members of their families, and their dads come up and go like, oh, you have to follow in your X, Y, and Z, uncle's footsteps, and you have to be like the best warrior of them all. And they're three good-looking, relatively good-looking, happy-go-lucky chaps. And on the night before, or the week before, they turn or become knights, they find out that they're joining a celibate order. And since they're joining a celibate order, and these knights are knights of the church and are not allowed to go out and, uh, let's just say, sling medieval dick around right <laughs> can't believe i used that phrase. i thought um, you were going to go with something euphemistic and then you really didn't no <laughs> just went straight for it um so i probably should have said like throw banana seeds out. I don't know. <laughs> but um <laughs> banana seeds um but they decide that they have to go and pop their cherries because there's no way of them getting out of this so it's last night's and it's about the three boys trying to go and lose their virginity. So it's like wacky sex and it comedy. Would be a teen comedy. But the Middle Ages. It's a wacky sex comedy set in the Middle Ages where they're trying to seduce various uh, ladies. Um, maybe we can even have one of them uh, is really chaste and his brother's like, no, you need to get this out of your system or else you're going to be missing it for the rest of your life and not know what it was. And we have to go to this and maybe he can have like a, a girlfriend who likes him who's maybe going to become a nun. And, oh, my God, we could have a secondary movie about a three girls who are going to be sent off to the convent who are trying to go out and have some fun before the thing. This is, yes, not, I like it even more. Um, so they've got three friends uh, played by, <sighs> let me see, who could play the, the lead, lead lady character? Aubrey Plaza can play one of them. Um, Aubrey Plaza does play a nun in by... a movie, a medieval nun in a movie. I, I've heard it's quite filthy. I have, I've also heard that, but I've not seen it. We, well, should, we should, we we should, should watch that, that for yeah. the show. But uh, Aubrey Plaza, she can play all three parts. <laughs> uh, and they're going to try and all lose their cherries on the same night. And it's last night and it's a teen sex comedy from the medieval ages. That sounds great. I would watch that movie. Uh, no, this comes on to our last segment, which is where we rate the movie on a scale of one to five. I was going to come up with funny, entertaining values to give us. like, And how many 
swords would you give this out of five? But I think we're just going to give it numbers because that's just how my brain works. Um, <laughs> and it's a lot easier. So this is what we call estimatio. Estimatio. It's <laughs> right, Theo. Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I was just dragging it out. Um, what would you rate this movie on a scale of one to five? So I'm going to give it a two. Two swords, and neither of them have cross guards. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to give it a two. Um, I will say, so for me, where it got points is that I actually thought the aesthetic was really cool. I thought the way that it combined different medieval worlds was really fascinating and a really interesting way to do this kind of movie. For me, a lot of the points that it loses is honestly because I don't think it's a very good movie, just as a movie. Um, I think they don't do the best possible job of laying out the plan I think they don't make Clive Owen's character's uh, transition from being terrible to apparently being not terrible, very believable in the context of the movie. Um, I also really cannot enjoy that much a movie where I hate the main character as much as I just deeply, passionately hate Clive Owen in this. Um, And uh, finally, I guess I will say... um, this movie does technically pass the Ift Decker test uh, that there are at least two named women who don't die. That, however, very much does not make this a feminist movie. And I find the way in which women are used as accessories where violence against women and um, I would say in some ways a kind of emotional abuse of women is used as a plot point and not necessarily always you know, presented that negatively, um, really deeply bothers me. So as I said, it gets a couple of points because I did like the aesthetic and I kind of like the way they did the adaptation in some ways, but it loses a lot of points for me just as a movie. Mm. I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying and I, I, I pretty much fully back you on all of these points. Um, so I'm going to come at it from a slightly different uh, point of view. So I start with all movies with five out of five, and I start taking points off for shit that goes down in the movie, right? So I'm going to see where I end up on my little notes here. Uh, so I'm going to start taking points off because, number one, Clive Owen's character is an absolute unmitigated shit. And the part where he walks off on Bartok's daughter, and she is trying to escape she's trying to find some sort of hope in her life and he just walks off and leaves her and he knew like there's no way he didn't know what was going to happen to her from then on in just disgusted me um i have no time for it and i i hated his character from then i didn't particularly enjoy him before that and i actually liked him up until the point where he did turn into a drunk i thought he was playing a, a, a standard honorable man yeah but then to have him just turn into such an absolute shit just turned me off one thing so i'm taking a point off for that i'm taking a point off for their entire plan not making sense being overly complicated in a way that would make an oceans 13 or oceans 11 right or blush <laughs> it is ridiculous how much groundwork they use in this when they literally could have killed him at any time there's various points there, there's one point in the movie where they show a character firing an arrow through a ring with a rope on it and then landing it within six inches 
of the men who would then use it to climb up over the wall, right? And it's a beautifully done shot. The same guy could have shot Giza, who was wandering around in his gardens, repeatedly with arrows. And the whole entire thing would have been done. So I took a point off for that. I took a point off for the fact that not a single woman has any agency in it whatsoever. Even Giza's wife, who her moment of triumph is to stand and watch as Gabriel gets out of the mirror. Right, that her father clearly does all the actual work. Her father did all the actual work. So it's like, yeah, she's in on it. Yeah, she's our heroine, but she's not really. Um, and the way that Clive Owen's character treats his wife is just detestable. So I'm taking another point off that. So I'm at two out of five. At this point, I'd normally start trying to add some points back on, but the swords annoyed the hell out of me. The action scenes are really are genuinely well done. I enjoyed them. Um, so I'm going to stick with two out of five because of the stuff that I took the marks off for just were egregious and annoying. So you're agreed, two out of five. Another movie that we do not recommend. I think I guess this is our worst thus far. <laughs> I think this is our worst thus far. But at the same time, um, I'm saying two out of five, great on scale. I, you might probably, like if you're, I'm not going to lie and say I didn't quite enjoy this movie. I mean, it might have helped that I was chatting to Sarah while I was doing it. Um, and it's always good when like company will make the movie better. But at the same time, it's it's a relatively fun movie, but I I wouldn't recommend it to somebody who wasn't a big fan of this particular myth or legend. Yeah, I would say there's definitely things that I enjoyed about it. And as I said, I, I was actually just talking to somebody about it, describing, as I said, the kind of visual of the movie. And I think that I think I actually told somebody they should try to just watch the trailer and not actually watch the movie. <laughs> that might um. actually be a good idea. Uh, do you listen to WHM, Sarah? I don't. Oh, well, they describe movies as hangover movies. Um, so it's a movie that you can have on in the background where you've got a hangover and it's just long enough and just not complicated enough to keep your brain from falling asleep or whatever. So I think we should start bringing in the idea of a trailer movie, a movie which is just interesting enough for you to want to watch two and a half minute version of it. Yeah, that would be my recommendation for this. <laughs> so this movie is a trailer movie. Everybody watch the trailer and then don't think about it after that because the people who wrote it clearly didn't either. Not too much now. <laughs> okay, so we've reached a point now where we're going to say good luck. But before we do, we have a couple of things to get right just at housekeeping for the podcast. And the first thing we're going to do is talk about what our next movie is. Sarah... What movie are we going to be covering in next week's podcast? So next we are going to be watching Robin Hood from 2010 starring Russell Crowe. So everyone will get to hear my thoughts and feelings about Russell Crowe. And also uh, Kate Blanchett playing the villain. Mm? No, she's not the villain. <laughs> she's playing the She's a hero. <laughs> she is. She's pretty much the only hero in the in the movie. So we're going to be watching Robin Hood. And this will be the first time we've touched on Robin Hood on the podcast. He will become, uh, and the Robin Hood legend will become a fertile ground for us yes. to come across in the next 
in, as the, the podcast. Yes, there will be many, many versions of Robin Hood. This also is going to be the first movie of at least three that we will do at some point um, that has Eleanor of Aquitaine in it. And she is my favorite historical figure. So I am very excited. Uh, I knew very little about Eleanor Aquitaine. But then when Sarah was telling me about it, it was like, oh my God, why aren't all the movies about this one? They should definitely all be about Eleanor of Aquitaine. Just why do we even have other movies? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Sarah, would you like to tell people how they can get in contact with us? I would love to. So first of all, if you have been enjoying this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcasting platform. And also, if you have any feedback for us, we encourage you to get in touch with us via email. Our email address is media.evilpod at gmail.com. That's M-E-D-I-A dot E-V-A-L at gmail.com. And uh, you can also find us on Twitter at MediaEvilPod, where I will occasionally tweet things relevant to this podcast and the Middle Ages. And I will never tweet because I do not know how. If you want to find me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me under my real name. So you can find me at Sarah H. Decker on either of those platforms. Um, and Ali, where else can they find you on the internet? You can find me at my other podcast. I do one called Best Acquaintances with my best friend, Emily. Um, we are two people who've never met and we record interviews with people that we only know from the internet. So we basically pick one of our friends that we know from various Facebook groups. We give them a Skype call and we just talk to them about you know themselves. And it turns out that everybody is interesting. Like people say, oh, no, I can't talk about anything. There's nothing, there's nothing interesting about me. And then literally every single episode, you'll find at least one or two nuggets of pure gold where people are telling you stories. And it just turns out that they've, they've lived pretty much amazing lives. Every single person at some stage has done something extraordinary to the rest of us. It might feel ordinary to you, but it's extraordinary to people who aren't living through it at the time. Um, that's how myself and Sarah met. Mm -hmm. uh, hers is a very good episode and it's, uh, it's really great. I recommend it to everybody. So it's called Best Acquaintances and you can find us in the Best Acquaintances podcast group on Facebook as well, which is just full of nice people doing nice stuff. Absolutely. It's good. Sarah, always a pleasure. You too. And we'll see you all next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.